Paul said, the fruit of the Spirit is love. Now, love is one of those misunderstood words in our vocabulary. We love everything. I love cheesecake. I was gone this week doing a youth camp, and I found a cookbook for baby cheesecakes. And I bought it for my wife to be a blessing to me. <laughs> love cheesecakes. I love Coca-Cola. Well, I tell you, they came out with new Coke. I thought demons had inhabited the company, but they, <laughs> they got saved again and got... I love Coca-Cola. Boy, on a hot day. Oh. I love a sports car. like to drive down the road just barely above the speed limit. It's only that far on the speedometer, but it just, you know. Boy, we love pizza. Let's have a pizza pig out. We eat a pizza pig out and we spread out, you know. I mean, we love stuff. We love our alma mater. We may not know the words to all the hymns, but we know the theme song from our alma mater. Oh, we love everything. We love our pets. We love our cats. We love our... My dad said, I'm never going to get married again because he said, this, well, I'm probably marry some woman and she wouldn't like my cats. I said, no, Dad, she wouldn't like the way you keep the house. That's the way she wouldn't like we love our dog. Well, we're not sure about our dog, but you love yours probably. Oh, we love so many things. There are some misconceptions about love. We, we sometimes think of love as a feeling. You know, I fell into love as if it's an uncontrollable emotion. Well, for a 15-year-old girl, it usually is. But, uh, you know, we get all these ideas about love. You know, it's a quiver in your liver. You know, it, it, it's a lump in your throat. It's a queasiness in your stomach. The world tells us a lot about love. Love is all you need. All you need is love. What the world needs now is love, sweet love. The movies tell us love means never having to say you're sorry. I'm just going to tell you men, you better learn to say you're sorry. <laughs> love may mean you never have to say you're sorry, but if you don't want to slap across the face, you better learn to say you're sorry. Bill's the only one that agrees with me right here. Does anybody else in here understand what I'm saying this morning? You better learn to say you're sorry. We got all kind of crazy ideas about love. And the reason we come up with those ideas is because we have filtered these words like love through a grid of our experience and our perceptions. Our experience tells us love is a certain thing and love expresses itself in a certain way. My dad was raised in a generation of men that you just never cried. Love didn't express itself that way. Well, I told you I loved you when I married you and if I need to tell you again, I'll tell you. You know, now Promise Keepers is telling men they need to be more expressive in their love. And, and it, so it comes with your experience and it comes with your perception, how you've seen other people express love. But what's the meaning of love? The meaning of love is quite different, and yet the meaning of love, even in the church, has been filtered through how we viewed love from the world standpoint. What I want us to do this morning is look at love through God's Word 
and see how love expresses itself. What the Word tells us, it tells us that God is love. Whatever else you think about God, the one thing you can know about God is that God is love. Even when He acts in judgment, He is loving those that He judges. Not only that, you know that God tells us that we're to love Him with all our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength. We're supposed to love our neighbors as ourselves. We're supposed to love our enemies. It's the fruit of the Spirit. It's the test of the Christian life in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Now, there's some words in the Greek that relate to love, and really two of them are not used at all in the New Testament. Storge is the word that is used for just natural affections. It is not a New Testament word but it is a Greek word. Eros is a word for erotic love. It has to do with sexual attraction. Phileo is the word for friendship, and it's the base for the word Philadelphia, where we get the city of brotherly love. It is, it is affection and friendship. It is love for other people. We get the word philanthropy. has its root in the word phileo. But the word agape is the word that the New Testament writers took and made it a significant word. It means simply this. Agape means to want the best for someone else, regardless of their merit or your cost. To want the best for someone else, regardless of their merit or your cost, whether they deserve it or not, and regardless of what it costs you to express that love to them. I, I, I heard a story about a college student, he was talking to his girlfriend, and he said, I just want you to know that I love you enough that I'd be willing to die for you. And she said, oh, you're always saying that, but you've never done it. Agape says, I will go to whatever extreme I need to go to. I will do whatever I need to do. I will expend myself in whatever way I need to expend myself to show you unconditional love. Agape is the fruit of the Spirit. It is the love that God has for us, but it is also the love that God looks for in us. God says, when I talk about love, I talk about agape. Now, it doesn't depend on the atmosphere. It depends on the attitude. The atmosphere doesn't matter. The circumstances, the events of life really don't matter when agape is concerned. In the best and worst of times, agape rises to the top. It is not atmosphere, it's attitude, and it's twofold. It's a matter of choice. I have to choose to exercise agape, and it is a matter of conduct. It is choice and it is conduct. That means that when eros, sexual love and sexual affection, comes under the authority of agape, then there will be no more infidelity. There will be no more sexual abuse because it will be under God's kind of love for other people. It means when phileo comes under agape, God's kind of love for other people, that when we love people, we will love them the way Christ loves them. And so God wants all of our love and all of our affections and all our relationships under His authority of agape love. Now listen, if you would, as someone explained, the love of God is revealed in the Old Testament and culminating in Jesus Christ. God's love rested on Abraham 
blessed Isaac, wrestled with Jacob, rebuked through the prophets, governed through the kings, ministered through the priests, waited through the rebellions, persisted through captivities, and showed itself in its ultimate form in Jesus Christ. You know how God shows agape? He sent his son. He modeled it and he manifested it by coming in the form of man, by laying aside his glory. He modeled it by raising the sick and, and the dead, and he modeled it by loving children and letting children come into his presence. He loved it by elevating women in society where they were just treated as something to just be pushed around. Jesus Christ, in every relationship and everything he did, modeled love. He modeled it as he walked the streets of Galilee. He modeled it as he stood silent before Pilate when he could have called the angels to help him. He modeled it as he walked the hill of Calvary alone after suffering the beatings. He modeled it when he died on the cross for your sin and mine. He modeled it when he rose from the dead and when he appeared to the disciples and when he ascended to the Father. Everything he did and everything he said was to say God loves you and God wants to have a relationship with you. The meaning of love is Jesus Christ. If you want to define love, you look at the person of Jesus Christ. And what he says to us is, you and I are to manifest the life of Christ out of us to other people. Now, how does that affect us? Well, number one, it affects us in that we love God first and foremost. We love him because he first loved us, the scripture says. We are to love God with all our heart, all our soul, and all our strength, and all our mind. Now turn, if you would, to Matthew chapter 22. This is a non-negotiable command. Loving God is not open for debate. How you express that love may come in a variety of forms. But if we are going to be Christians then the first and foremost command for our lives is loving God. Matthew 22. What does it mean to love God? Verse 37. And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. Now what does heart mean? The heart deals with your ability to discern. Out of a love for God, you learn to discern good from evil, right from wrong, true from false. God gives you a heart as you love him with all your heart to discern the way you're supposed to live your life. Your soul has to do with your desires. What do you desire? What do you go after? What do you have a passion for? Your desires come in line with your love for God. You love God with your desires your passions, your thoughts, your wills, your want-tos are all wrapped up in your love for God. Then you love Him with all your mind. That has to do with your direction and your decision-making. How do you love God with all your mind? You show it in your direction of your life and in your decision-making. Now, if you love God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, three things happen. Number one, you want what He wants. When I love God, I want what He wants. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's not about me, Lord. It's about you. It's not about my reputation. It's about your glory. It's not about my life. It's about your life being manifested in me. It's not about my will. It's about your will. I want what God wants. Number two, I love 
what he loves. I love what he loves. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Did you notice God didn't pick and choose who he loved? He didn't just say, I love Americans. He didn't say, I just, I just love Africans. He didn't say, I just love Asians. He didn't say, I just love uh, American Indians. He said, I love the world. Jesus Christ is the example of love, and 1 Corinthians 13 is the test of love. We are to love what he loves. Love is kind and patient. It isn't jealous. It doesn't brag. It's not arrogant. It doesn't act unbecomingly and is not provoked. I love what God loves. Let me ask you, do you love what God loves? Number three, when you want what he wants, when you love what he loves, you will hate what he hates. What does God hate? God hates sin. And when I am in a right relationship with God and when I love God the way I'm supposed to, then I view sin the way I'm supposed to view it because I understand that God hates sin, but he loves sinners. And because God hates sin and because sin is what put Jesus on the cross and sin is what required the sacrifice and sin is what cost Jesus the separation from his Father, then I need to view sin the way God views it. I don't compromise it. I don't gloss it over. I don't try to shave the corners off of it. I don't try to negotiate it. I don't say something is gray when it's black or white. I live according to the Word of God, and when God points out sin, I feel about that sin the same way He feels about it. And God hates sin because of what it does to you and I. He hates sin because of what it cost Him. But He loves sinners. So I'll hate what he hates. I love God. I'm to love my neighbor, verse 39. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Now, who is my neighbor? Luke chapter 10. Turn, if you would, to Luke chapter 10. Who's my neighbor? How big is my block? Well, you know, I used to live on a real small block just had a few houses and now I live on this bigger block and kind of it's a long way between these two streets and, and there's there are a lot of people on that street and do, I, do I have to love all of them I mean is it, is it just the or is it just the people on the left and on the right and, it, and maybe just the person right across the street and if his house doesn't face me, do I have to love him or just have to love the people whose houses face me? Uh, if we have to share a backyard fence, do I have to love them? Well, glad you asked because the man asked Jesus the same question. He wanted to know what the limits were, what the boundaries were. And in verse 29 of Luke chapter 10, But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, Who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied and said, A certain man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And he fell among robbers, and they stripped him and beat him and went off leaving him half dead. And by chance, a Southern Baptist preacher was going by on the road. Yours doesn't say that? Oh. A certain priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise, a deacon also. When he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him, and when he saw him, 
he felt compassion. Oh, those Samaritans, half-breed dogs, that's what the Jews called them, half-breed dogs. They hated Samaritans. Jesus said, I must needs go through Samaria. Jesus went through the wrong part of the country, the wrong part of town, and met the wrong kind of woman at a well and had the greatest revival in his three years of public ministry because he went where nobody else wanted to go. He did what nobody else wanted to do. He loved people nobody else wanted to love. You know what the Samaritan reminds us of? Is some of us are too good to love our neighbors. Some of us are too clean to love our neighbors. Some of us can't get dirty enough and get down in the muck and mire of this world and take a hand and lift somebody up and love them in Jesus' name to the gospel. When you look at the gospel, when you look at Jesus, you will find that Jesus spent a great deal of time with people that we're sometimes uncomfortable associating with. God said, if you want to know what being a neighbor is, being a neighbor is stopping on your way to church and helping a guy change a flat tire. Being a neighbor is going to somebody who is having a hard time and finding a way to help them out. Being a neighbor is doing what is not expected, but doing what God would expect you to do if God were walking by that situation. Some of our young people have this bracelet on their hand. What would Jesus do? That's being a neighbor. Always asking myself, what would Jesus do? Love your neighbor, and then he says, as yourself. Now, the problem with loving ourselves is we sometimes confuse self-worth with selfishness or self-centeredness. The key is understanding the way God loves you. Now, how does God love you? Well, Jeremiah says that before you were ever born, I knew you. God speaking to Jeremiah. God says, I knew you, I formed you, I consecrated you, I set you apart. How can you love yourself? Because God loved you. God doesn't love you because you have a certain color hair or a certain color pair of eyes or a certain kind of physical build. God loves you, period. No conditional clauses. God loved you, and he set you aside, and he said, I've set my heart on you, and I want to get to know you. He has called you according to his purpose. You are a child of God. You are adopted into the family of God. You're an heir and a joint heir with Christ. You've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. You've been set free from your sin. You've been loved unconditionally by the God of love. You can love yourself when you realize God loved you enough to send his son to die for you, and that's healthy love. Don't kick yourself. Don't beat yourself up because you don't look a certain way or you don't have a certain thing or you're not coordinated in certain ways. You remember God loved you just like you were. He didn't say, clean up, look better, and I'll come to you. He didn't say, if you lose 40 pounds, I'll love you. He loves you like you are. No conditions, no clauses, one condition only. Just love my son. Love my son. And love your neighbor as yourself. You see, the only way we'll ever really love our neighbor is when we start realizing that God loves us. But now he brings another category in. Love your enemies. Turn, if you would, we're going to look at three passages, and I want to give you a checklist. A checklist for what to do with your enemies. Matthew chapter 5. 
We're going to be in Matthew 5, Luke 6, and Colossians 3. Matthew chapter 5, Luke chapter 6, and Colossians 3. Loving your enemies. I love what A.W. Tozer said. Tozer said, I am determined to love everybody even if it kills me. You say, well, preacher, I don't have any enemies. So you're telling me there's nobody in your life that when you get around them, it's kind of like somebody taking sharp fingernails and going down a chalkboard. And the hair on the back of your neck kind of goes, and you kind of, you seethe, and boy, you're just thinking, oh, man, boy, I tell you what, I love them. I really love them. Don't have any enemies, huh? There's a word for that. Liar. (laughs) Matthew chapter 5 and verse 44. But I say to you, what? Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. First thing on your checklist you're to do with your enemies? Love them. Well, they don't love me. I ain't going to love them. He didn't give you a choice. You don't have a choice. If you're going to be what God wants you to be, you have to love your enemies. Then you got to pray for them. Well, I'll, I'll turn their name into the prayer room, but I won't pray for them. <laughs> pray for those who persecute you. Now, is this clear or not? I mean, we don't need a Greek word study on this. You're either loving your enemies and you're praying for them or you're not. So you got one, love them. Two, pray for them. This lady came to Winston Churchill and she said, Winston, if you were my husband, I would put arsenic in your tea. And Churchill said, ma'am, if you were my wife, I'd drink it. <laughs> Luke chapter 6 and verse 27. He picks up two of these from Matthew chapter 5. He adds two more. Luke chapter 6 and verse 27. Number one, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. I don't want to do good to those who hate me. I want an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth and a fist for a fist. I'll do them good. I'll rearrange their face. I'll bless them. Bless those who curse you. Boy, some guy just, I mean, you know, you're just driving out around the road and some guy pulls out in front of you and I mean, bless you in Jesus' name, brother. That's the first thought that comes to mind, isn't it? (laughs) See you at church on Sunday. Hope you can't get a parking space. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. You don't know how they mistreated me. He didn't give a condition for it. Love, pray, do good, and bless. All right, preacher, I've had about enough. Well, I just want to take you to one more. Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 13. And we're going to add one more. And this one's tough. 
Colossians 3.13. Forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Now, boy, I wish the Lord had stopped right there because then I could debate him. I said, well, Lord, you obviously don't know what they've done to me. I'm one of your little boys, aren't I? And the bullies have been picking on me. You don't know what they've done to me. Some of you say, well, you don't know what my mom and dad did to me when they raised me. No, I don't. Well, you don't know how this... I don't. Well, I can't forgive that. Only one problem. This verse doesn't end with forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. It ends with forgive as the Lord forgave you. So I tell you, when God stops forgiving you, you can stop forgiving other people. But until then, it might be good to remember what all God had to forgive you of. It might be good to remember that it was that curse word, that bad attitude, that vengeful spirit, that revenge that you wanted to get, that anger, that bitterness, that hate, that envying, that strife. God said, I'm going to put all that on my son Jesus so you don't have to bear that burden. See, forgive is number five. I love, I pray, I do good, I bless, and I forgive. That means I forget about it. I get over it. I get through with my past and start living in the present. So I don't know how I can do that. That's why it's the fruit of the Spirit. You can't do it if you try to do it. That's why it takes God in you doing that. It's only God in you that will give you the ability to do that. Can I give you an encouragement? Take your hate list and turn it into a prayer list because you cannot hate people that you pray for. Take the list of people that are your enemies that just rub you the wrong way. If you get real honest, there may be more folks on there than you want to admit. It may be your boss, may be your employees, may be your parents, may be your brother, your sister, may be a sibling, may be, may be an aunt or an uncle, may be a neighbor, may be the preacher, may be a lot of people. Turn your hate list into a prayer list. And you know what? You can't keep resentment, you can't keep hate, you can't keep those kind of feelings when you're praying for people. Just can't do it. Boy, there's a part of us that wishes you could, you know. But you can't. Not when you're praying for people. So put it in the past. Start living in the present. You'll find out the past has been a ball and chain on you and God's been trying to set you free. Loving your enemies. And what's the evidence of it? Well, first of all, it's a matter of obedience. John chapter 13. Turn, if you would, please, to John chapter 13. It's a matter of obedience. You know, the thing about the love of God is very practical. John 13 and verse 34.
A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. In other words, I am to treat other people the way I want God to treat me. I am to make love for others the example of what God has done for me in his love through Christ. Love is an action word. It's not about feelings. It's not about circumstances. It's not about your atmosphere. It's about your obedience to the Word of God that we have a new commandment and it's not up for a vote. I don't get to choose. I'm to obey. I don't get to choose who it applies to. It applies to everyone I come in contact with. I am to love one another even as I have loved you, Jesus said. Number two, it's a matter of will. It's a matter of will. You just have to make a choice to do it. I'm going to obey, and it's a matter of my will. Now, there are 14 things in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 that Paul tells us are evidences of love in our lives. And we're not going to look at those because we don't have time this morning, but I would encourage you to take those 14 things and look at your life and ask yourself, do I give evidence as an act of my will? Do I choose to act this way? You see, we've limited 1 Corinthians 13 to the wedding vows. The only time we ever read 1 Corinthians 13 is when somebody's getting married. That's not just a passage for marriage. That's a passage for life, for every relationship. What is love? How does that stack up with my life? It's a matter of obedience. It's a matter of will. It's a matter, finally, of the Spirit's control. It is a matter of faith. The fruit of the Spirit is love. You see, the primary test of Christianity is not service, it's love. How do we love one another? How do we love God? How do we relate to each other? How we relate to each other is determined by how we're relating to God. It's turning the other cheek. It's going the second mile. You say, well, I can't do that. You, you just don't know it. And you know what? I don't know and I will never know. I mean, even if we sat down and talked for hours the things that people have done to you and the things that people have said to you and the hurt that's been brought into your life, I can never know that. I can never imagine it. I can never feel it the way you felt it. But I know this. When the Spirit of God is in control of your life, He can give you the capacity to love people that you cannot love on your own. And it's an act of your will, and it's the fruit of the Spirit. You see, the fruit of love is the fruit of the Spirit. And the fruit of the Spirit is love. Don't talk about the Spirit-filled life and the Christian life and the victorious life if in that there's not love for one another. On Sunday, November 4th, 1987, Gordon Wilson took his daughter Marie to a parade in Belfast, Northern Ireland. While they were standing waiting for the parade, a bomb exploded behind them that had been planted by IRA terrorists. In the midst of the rubble, they were trapped, and Gordon said that he felt someone reach out and touch his hand. And a voice, the voice of his daughter, Daddy, is that you? And he said, Yes, Marie, it's me. And she squeezed his hand and said, Daddy, I want you to know I love you very much. Four hours later, his daughter Marie was dead from severe spinal and brain injuries from that explosion.
Gordon lay in his hospital room, somehow a BBC reporter made it to his room and asked him how he felt about the terrorist who had planted that bomb. This is what Gordon said. I bear them no ill will. I hold no grudge against them. Bearing ill will cannot bring my daughter back to life. I just pray that they will know that God forgives them. I pray every night that they'll know the forgiveness of God. I want to tell you something. Only God can do that in us. Only God can do that in us. Only God in us, through us, can give us that kind of love for those kind of people. But you know, Jesus died for them too, just like he died for us. We may clean up better, but we're all sinners. And left to ourselves would do the most ungodly of things. And God says, as I have loved you, you show that love to other people. Would you pray with me, please, with heads bowed and eyes closed? This morning, if you are here and you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, I want to invite you this morning to let the love of God shine on your heart to come to know and understand the love and forgiveness of God through Jesus Christ. To come to the Lord today in repentance and say, Lord, I'm a sinner. I need to be saved. I need to receive your love for me, a sinner. Now, there are a lot of people I'm talking to this morning, and there's somebody on your hit list, on your hate list, Somebody you just have a hard time with. If you're loving God like you're supposed to, it will ultimately result in you loving them the way you're supposed to. Because God loved us unconditionally, no strings attached. We love other people unconditionally, no strings attached. means that there's no room for grudges, for envying, for strife, for bitterness, for hatred. Because all of us are equal at the foot of the cross. And today you may have to take that event that happened to you that hurt you so badly, or you may have to take that person, you may have to take something in your life and you may have to lay it on the altar and say, God, this hurt me, but it has not hurt me as much as my sin has hurt you. And so I come today to love and to forgive. See, you can walk out of here with a fruit that does not spoil the love of Jesus Christ manifested in your life. 
If you try to do it, it'll spoil because you'll try to work it up and you can't keep it going. But boy, if you'd let the Lord do it, He could do what you cannot do in ways that you cannot imagine. The choir's going to sing I Surrender All in just a moment. When they do, I'm going to ask you to get up from where you are. I know we're seated and you'll have to get around some folks, but I want to ask you to very reverently stay where you are and unless there's a decision that you need to make publicly to come to this altar, to come and kneel, to come and tell one of these men you need to be saved, to come and say, I want to be a part of this church family just like family did in the earlier hour this morning. Whatever you've got to do so that when you leave this place, you manifest the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, then you do that. The choir's singing. It's time for you to come.